You are Locked On Women's Basketball, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Locked On Women's Basketball. I'm your host, Howard Megdahl, reminding you you can follow us on Twitter at LockedOnWBB, like us on Facebook at Locked On Women's Basketball, and be sure to go ahead and subscribe to us and hopefully review us as well on iTunes or your podcast listen of choice. Gets more people listening and more people paying attention to the world of women's basketball, which is an important goal for all of us. And someone who has contributed to that as much as anyone you'll ever meet uh, is with us today. It's Kathy Delaney-Smith, the longtime coach of the Harvard women's basketball team. Uh, Coach, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. I think you do a great job. I appreciate that. A place I'd love to start is just to talk about the earliest days, your earliest memories of basketball, and specifically how you grow up uh, as the daughter of Peg Delaney, but are more interested in swimming than basketball. Yeah, it's funny, yeah. I'm one of the oldies but goodies. Um, you know, there's a handful of us left where uh, my my early stages was six-player, no one could cross half-court. Mm-hmm. Then we graduate to six-player, rovers could cross half-court. Um, and, and so, you know, I've been through the entire development of women's basketball. Um, so my mother was a woman ahead of her time, you know, and she's my absolute number one hero, but I probably didn't know it while she was alive. I think I probably got to look in the rear view mirror and appreciate what a pioneer she was. Um, I was the fifth of six kids, four girls, two boys, and, you know, we just, roles were not gender roles were just not how it was in my house everybody can do everything and that's how i was raised um i did love swimming we lived near a lake in newton massachusetts where uh i i love to swim i love to dive i that was my world but across the street there were two basketball hoops and i would just go out every day and shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot so i was a really good shooter Mm -hmm. but um you know and so i loved all sports it didn't i loved to ice skate i you know, I loved every sport I was exposed to, I loved. And, and that was because of my mother. And, and let's not sell the basketball accomplishments short as a thousand-point scorer at that time as well. Very important that we mention that, uh, to be sure. Yeah. But, but, but even beyond that, you talked about gender roles not being a significant part of the equation in your house. What was your level of awareness of it outside the house? When, when did that first become clear? Because... Uh, Look, you, you've fought these battles at every step of the way and at every moment, and you, you graduated from college literally the year before Title IX went into, went into effect. So what was that realization like, and how do you remember pushing back against it first? Yeah, the, I remember it clearly because it, I was shocked by it. Um, it was when I got my first teaching job. As I was a physical education and health teacher, and uh, the superintendent, I wanted to start their swimming program, which I did, and this was in 1971, and, and the basketball program had not been very successful, and the superintendent said, before he gave me the job, can you coach basketball and win? And I didn't really even think. I said yes, mm-hmm. which was funny because I did not play basketball in college. Um, and so I don't know where that yes came from. Just maybe act as if the way I was raised, I guess, because I wanted the job so badly. Right. And I, uh, you know, I was 0 and 11 my first year as a basketball coach. It was the year we went from five to five-player basketball, and I, that was not my expertise. I had had classes. 
I read books. I went to clinics. I was, you know, voracious, ferocious in the way I uh, tried to learn the sport because I knew nothing. But uh, at that time, the there was not equal coaching salaries. There was not equal gym time. You know, we got the leftover time, and I just we got leftover uniforms. We had to wait for the field hockey uh, skirts to be passed down to the basketball program to be passed on to the softball program. I just didn't know the world was like that. I thought that was incredibly wrong. So I filed some lawsuits along the way, and they never made it to court, but they made it to arbitration. And, you know, we got a lot accomplished at Westwood High School in the 70s. And it was because of Title IX. And because I was probably, people go, oh, how can you do that, Kathy? That's so risky. But I never thought about the risk. I just thought about what what needed to be right. So I was sort of lucky, I guess. I, I, lo- I love the story where you had the basketball team storm into the locker room when the boys were once again uh, t- taking over. It, it Did it feel like you were at the forefront of a movement as you were doing this? I, you know, I, I mean in a larger sense. Obviously, you were, and we can see that in retrospect. But at the time, did it feel like there was a tide that was turning and you were you were part of that? I never thought that. I didn't have that big a vision. I, I was more grassroots. I was more, this is my team. This is what's wrong. This is what's right. And I'm going to, I'm going to make all the wrong, right. And, you know, we had, we had gotten new uniforms. They changed the salaries. I got some assistant coaches. We had, we shared the gym. So all that was really good. But the culture at the time was, you know, the women's teams didn't get very much media coverage. So hence we had to play afternoon games and all the boys got night games. And, you know, I was on a mission to change that because there were young women who were being recruited for my team at the time, and college coaches can't get out to see them as often in the afternoon, so that that was a problem. Yeah. And then when we came home from our afternoon game, they gave our locker room and my where my office was and all my players had their stuff to the JV team. And I, I tried to talk about alternate solutions, and here's a different locker room that boys JV can go in, and you know, the answer was no, no, no. And so I just said, well, we're going to make this answer yes. And so we marched in. And then we never had to wait for our locker room ever again. It just (laughs) just changed. So it was very comical. But no, I wasn't thinking about the larger movement. I was thinking about making it right for my team. That's really interesting. And and so after a a ton of success, 0-11 was not the ultimate record that you had uh, coaching at the high school level. When you got the chance to go coach at Harvard, take me through, first of all, what uh, that process was like, and second of all, what the program's goals and your goals were when you got there. Yeah, Harvard took a big chance on me. I'm still scratching my head you know, why were they brave enough to do that? Because the process was, I was the only high school coach and it was because I was local and they were just being polite, uh, inviting me to apply for the job. Everyone else was a a college coach and had some experience either playing and or coaching at the college level. So, you know, I actually, truth be told, I didn't really want the job. (laughs) I had some misconceptions about Harvard. Mm -hmm. You know, my family were all Boston College people and Boston College and Harvard have this healthy yes. cross-town rivalry, even to this day. So I ha- I fell under all these misconceptions about Harvard, and I didn't prepare for the interview. I didn't have a resume. I threw something together. 
I was just very ill-prepared for the interview process, which was the typical, you know, nine, ten people, admissions, the dean, the captains, you know, like a huge table of people. And I, um, you know, I was, I'm sort of like, I'll, I'll speak before I think which, you know, I wouldn't recommend that <laughs> professional path for anyone, but that's who I was at the time. And and then I was passed along to, you know, one-hour interviews with everybody on the committee. And by the time the process, it was a whole day-long process, was finished, I had fallen in love with Harvard. I could tell in one day all these perceptions I have were wrong. And I was I remember that it took a long time for them to choose me, probably because of the lawsuits and I know that they made a lot of phone calls over those lawsuits Mm -hmm. and you know just the you know the things that I had done to make my program what it was at Westwood so um and I found myself really really regretting that I wasn't prepared and I would you know tell everyone prepare which they do these days now anyway and I was just lucky enough to get the job and then I found myself, I had a great team that year. I thought there was a lot of talent there. There was an inside game, there was an outside game, and I'm thinking, wow, this is this is going to work. You know, and I think the recruiting piece of it was the unknown to me, but, you know, that's just sales and people skills and, you know, pounding the pavement. So I thought I was good to go, but, you know, there's so much more to coaching than than just having the horses. I think there's team synergy and chemistry and confidence, all the sports psychology intangibles. And, you know, I think that was a little bit of a shipwreck when I went to Harvard, yeah, that those things were a little askew. So I learned really quickly that I had my work cut out for me, actually. Well, and, and, and they took a chance on you. You took a chance on them. It seems to have worked out reasonably well for both sides at this point. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I would would say I think we can make that call. And, and, you know, so leaving aside even the the question of your own success, which is not any sort of question with the most wins in Ivy League history, when you think about the scope of the Ivy, do you think, number one, what, what are some of the biggest changes that you see over this period of time, uh, over this, you know, three and a half decades. But also, do you think that those changes track with the larger national game, or is it a little bit different in a non-scholarship conference when Title IX in a lot of ways has to do with, very specifically, equality of scholarships? Yeah. Um, The answer is a little of both. Hmm. I think the Ivy League is in many ways dramatically different because it's not a scholarship system and none of the Ivies use any of their sports as a revenue-producing element of the academic process. So in one sense, that's good. Um, In the other sense, it's the same because we have to do exactly the same as uh, the scholarship systems do. We have to recruit to the same level, the same amount, the same degree, the same places. We just have to sell the academic and the balance piece of the experience versus the scholarship system, which may or may not be as balanced as an Ivy League experience. Hmm. So it's, you know, I it's so funny. I've been in the league for so long. There's probably been three or four coaches at every other school, and inevitably coaches will call me and say, how do you tell them there's no scholarship? How, <laughs> when, where do you say, come to Harvard, come to you know, Dartmouth, and at what point do you say, oh, and by the way, there's no scholarships. 
Right. That's, you know, that's probably, oh, and by the way, you have to fill out your application. And, you know, I can't guarantee you admission. I mean, so it's very, mu- it's very much harder than just going out and picking the basketball players that you want and putting the puzzle together. Well, you, know, I, you have to... Yeah. I, 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 and just to that end, you know, you, you brought in, and, and not not for the first time, you know, in Jeannie Bame and McDonald's All-American. So you're not just going up against scholarship teams, but you're going up against uh, the biggest, fiercest programs around. So what was it like specifically in, in that recruiting instance? Yeah, um, the, we were lucky because the Bames, all of the, her older brothers had gone to academic schools, including yeah. some other Ivies. So to be honest, I, you know, I'm proud that Jeannie's at Harvard, but that Jeannie was one of the easy ones. <laughs> you know, um, te- Allison Feaster was tough. Mm-hmm. Um, Reka Czerny from Hungary was tough. Um, there was there's some other really tough ones that, you know, we've gone up against Han- Stanford more times than I want to admit to. Mm-hmm. And that's just a hard one. You know, that, you know, the climate is, is a difference in our climate. I'm not going to say better. I'm just going to say different. <laughs> um, you, know, you know, they're a perennial Final Four team. They're a great academic school. So, you know, you just sort of have to... Um, I'm a believer that if you're supposed to be at Harvard, then I'm going to win some and I'm going to lose some. And I'm going to m- move along to the next day. I don't live in the past. I don't worry about... You know, I don't feel like, oh, that I've lost someone. You know, I might have a 10-minute you know, tantrum that I was sad that I lost someone, but I move along. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I love my job, so that makes it easy for me. In terms of, uh, I'm glad you mentioned Stanford and and Allison Feaster. I'm curious whether you view that as an inflection point for the program uh, that you've developed there, not only to get and then develop and then send uh, into the WNBA uh, first round in Allison, but also you have a video you can show prospective recruits of an NCAA yeah. tournament victory uh, to go along with that. Do you view that in, as a turning point, as a leap forward, let's say, for the program, even from where it was, which had already been successful within the Ivy League context? Yeah, um, I, you know, of course, yes. Um, but, but, but I think that the Ivy League, I, I had felt prior to that because that that question's asked a lot, and I I would say that if you look at some of the Dartmouth teams, and I think Brown had a champion, and mm-hmm. we had at least two or three champions that were competitive with some of the top teams in the program. And just because there was not an automatic bid, or we were never on TV, you know, we never really got the recognition or the respect that I thought the Ivy League should. We were always considered a glorified Division two team because how can you be very good if you don't have scholarships, you know? And so the media impacts, you know, the national exposure enormously. Look what Penn Prison has been able and now there's a little bit more media. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. so yes, it was a turning point and yes it does help us to recruit. But I think as we grow nationally regarding media and I mean there's there was seven, six games on T V last night, like that that just it helps our league, you know, and the digital Ivy Network helps. There's, you know, the media is catapulting us, hopefully, to a different level. Well, and beyond even just the media per se, the fact that you guys had a multi-team, a multi-bid year in the NCAA tournament yeah. last year with with Penn and Princeton, do you think that that is reflective of 
the ability to understand the level of play at the Ivy League, or do you think that it represents a new level of play, and that's why uh, the Ivy saw multiple teams in the NCAA tournament last year? I think it represents a new level of play. Uh, not that the top teams were great 15 years ago, mm-hmm. but, but the bottom teams were the bottom teams. Um, you know, you're n- our conference right now, I think, is still ranked ninth out of 30-some-odd conferences. Mm-hmm. Like, that's amazing for a conference that does not have scholarships and that has rigid admissions requirements yeah. and, r- and a whole set of Ivy League rules that are different than NCAA rules. So, you know, the fact that we're ninth means that there's darn good athletes and really good teams in the Ivy League. And I think, you know, even our non, I mean, our, I don't know, we, we lost two. One, you know, unfortunately, I'm still recovering from that. But, <laughs> I, you know, I think the Ivy League is really deep this year. I, I even said, you know, two weeks ago, I don't think the winner of the Ivy League will go undefeated. If anyone can, maybe Penn can. But I, I, I think... The league is very strong, top to bottom. And at any night, you're gonna, you're gonna, someone's gonna upset someone. And if you, I, if you look at the um, recruits each Ivy got coming in next year, mm-hmm. it, it's off the charts. Like these are players that, you know, looked at some of the top scholarship schools and they chose Ivy. And there's about four or five of us that got some. So, you know, I think the league is just gonna get stronger and stronger. Well, I know Penn alums who still uh, think about last year with regret coming that close to beating Kelsey Plum in the first round of the tournament. But even Absolutely. A, and even after uh, you know a difficult weekend for you guys, you still have an RPI at thirty-five. So you have put yourself in that position by getting out-of-conference wins like beating Temple in Kansas uh, as uh, as well. So does that? put you in a position you think if you have a strong remainder of your year even if you don't win uh in march at the palestra uh and get that automatic bid do you see a potential at-large bid is very much in in play for your team at this point yeah absolutely like the fact that we have a tournament number one and number two it's the tournament winner that goes to the ncaa you know, that's just, I mean, that's what the league has been fighting for for a number of years. So, yeah. you know, that has made, that's going to be a very different dynamic to this league second round. You know, we're, this is, we might be one of the youngest teams in the country, to be honest. And mm-hmm. if you look at the end of every of our ball games that are close, I have two freshmen and two sophomores on the floor. Yeah. And, and there are, there are go-to folks. So, you know, our youth caught up with us this weekend, unfortunately. But it was we were living on the edge a little bit, and that that doesn't mean we're a bad team. That means we have to learn from, you know, what our youth did, and and move on. And I see, you know, we're still a really really good team, and uh, I think it's going to be a really fun, interesting Ivy League finish. Yeah, I'm, I mean, look, even as young as you've been, to go out and reel off 16 wins in a row. I, I know you had the WNIT appearance last year, but like you said, it, it's such a different team. Do you feel as if you're ahead of schedule as far as where you thought you would be this year? A hundred percent. I, you know, freshmen are freshmen, and so even my sophomore class, they weren't. They were just freshmen last year, and with that goes, you know, they don't know the game well enough. They don't understand the transition to college, you know. And I have two freshmen that are not only are starting every game they're finishing every game mm-hmm. and there are go-to's you know that that that's not ideal N- neither neither one of them have the college size or athleticism yet 
to do what they're doing, and yet they're doing it. So, you know, that's just going to get better each week. We got another four weeks. So, and, and not not just young, but your primary post player and your and your point guard, your playmaker. I mean, you know, right. really positions yeah. of, of of significance. Uh, th- coming off of this past weekend and the tough games, and, and look, you know, that is arguably the toughest trip in the Ivy League to go uh, and play at the Plaster and go to Jadwin. So. Do you think that you have figured out a pathway to beating those two teams uh, between now and March? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I do. Because um, it won't be easy, but yes. Uh, because I thought defensively in both games we, 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 we were good enough to win. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, and for whatever reason it happened, we, there was like a lid on the rim. We just could not put the ball in the basket. Um, I think maybe against Princeton we made some errors. Um, and, again, I think those errors, I can tie those in. I know why they happened, mm-hmm. and I think they're correctable. So, um, you know, we're going to go into every – again, we're going to take every single game the same because we lost two, but we only beat, you know, Columbia at the buzzer, and Cornell was a close game, and Brown's on a run. So – you know, we're just still going to take it every game, at one game at a time. We 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 really shouldn't be building Penn and Princeton up to the be all and end all. Right. You know, I'm sure we do. I'm sure we do because they won the most recent titles. But they're, you know, we have the ability to beat both of those teams. So, and I think my team intrinsically believes that. So, uh, and just as a competitor, how, how excited are you for? A conference tournament. Do you do you have uh, a, a level of anticipation that changes the way you sort of think about March, just even emotionally? Yes. Well, I'm kind of old school. It was my assistant coach, Mike Rue, who sort of put it in perspective for me mm-hmm. regarding you know where he came from and 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 Jazz, who came from Colorado. They both have had conference tournaments and then March Madness, and they spoke to me at length about you know, the conference tournament and March Madness and all that. <clears throat> and it's sort of just a renewed, wonderful feeling. Like it's a, And I think the whole league feels that way. Yeah. I would say if you talk to Yale and Columbia and anyone, they're going to tell you the same thing. Like, this is, this is what you play for. It's going to be fascinating to see. Bigger picture, I'm curious what your take is. The uh, NCAA recently released some numbers about the fact that offense is up across the board and production is up across the board uh, what do you account for that as the reason for being I think the players are getting better and working harder at their game um, and I you know and whether that's just you know a heart a blue-collar worker you know creating her own success or just natural athletic ability and or, and or both. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say, and we, we here at Harvard had just had a department meeting about millennials and how to coach millennials and what the stat, statistics are saying about them. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line is these kids are doing so much. They are driven. They are motivated and committed to working really, really hard at whatever they choose to do, and I see in basketball. I have a team. I had to go around and tell. We gave our team today off. I had to go tell four players they are not allowed to come in and shoot because their bodies are just broken down right now, and they right. need to take a day off. And I and my my point guard begged, begged me, 
please, can I just do 30 minutes of shooting? Well, if you have that kind of drive and that kind of passion, that's going to show up as be- better offense because you, you know what? They're not practicing their defense. Um, that's going to show up on the court. <laughs> so, Under- understood. And yeah. I, I guess to that end, when you think about the next step for the women's game, what do you see as the next evolution, either in, in a, a micro or a macro way? Well, I'm a little nervous hmm. um, of where it's going, NCAA-wise. Just sort of, I'm, I'm not a, I haven't been a fan of some of the changes like that what? the NCAA, um, you know, like basically getting rid of all the rules and regulations because they can't police them. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, and the number of recruiting days and what's, you know, now we're going to let everybody go out all of July. Uh, just just the, the conversations about where they're going and what the NCAA is going to regulate and not regulate. Just the money for the, you know, the that whole money issue. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's going down the wrong road, in my opinion. I think there's already factions on campuses about the elite athletes, the football team, the basketball team. And now you're giving money because colleges aren't going to be able to give it to everyone. Those factions are going to get even wider. And I don't think that's good for the universities and the colleges. I just don't. I don't know the answer. So, But I, I'm i nervous for some of the decisions the NCAA is making. Yeah, It's a valid, in my opinion, reasonable concern as well. And it's going to be fascinating to see uh, certainly how other schools manage to do uh what you have done and continue to do at Harvard uh, for the foreseeable future. I'm wondering, right. for, for, from your perspective, have you given any thought to how long you want to be doing this? Have you given any thought to uh, what, what the end game is for you? Yeah, I, I, uh, yes, the answer is I have, um, but I try not to. I, I really, I've never, like, I, I was highly criticized when I gave up my tenured high school position and went to Harvard. Everyone's like, are you crazy? But that's just kind of who I am. I don't, I don't worry about five years from now. I, I'm kind of an in-the-moment person. So mm-hmm. I take care of today, and then when tomorrow comes, we'll deal with tomorrow. I don't worry about, again, I don't, I'm not thinking about the Penn-Princeton weekend. That's gone. I've learned from it. It's gone, and, and I'm I, about today right now. So um, everyone asks me when I'm going to retire, and everyone asks me how could you stay for 35 years? It's so hard. Blah 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 blah. But if you love what you do, so I, it, and so I've had some rough years. I would say though that stretch where I have not won a title was different for me and very hard. Even though we went to the WNIT and we were in the race till the end and came in second, mm-hmm. you know everybody thinks that's great except for me and so those were hard years for me and they were hard because I wasn't reaching our goals number one and number two I had some real life my athletes had some real life situations career ending season ending injuries and other things that just seemed to be I seemed to have twice as many as I thought I should have right and along with that goes a lot of counseling and a a lot of work off the floor, and it was exhausting, and it was, you know, it was hard. So I thought, you know, maybe I can't do this anymore. Maybe I'm too tired. But um, I wasn't too tired, and I love my job. And so if if I feel I'm doing a good job, 
it probably will stick in there for a little while. Yeah, well, and you've been described as, as a mother to your players as much as a coach, so I can imagine, uh, although I would imagine that ties you to the program uh, in a more fundamental way. It probably makes it harder to leave at some level, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and so, last one before I let you go. You go in March, you go in at the Palestra, you win that automatic bid, but you finished, let's say, second in the Ivy League overall. Is that going to feel like a championship to you? Is it going to feel different than what has constituted a championship at the Ivy League uh, for all these years? That is the, a great question because I'm the old school. The Ivy League title is the be-all and end-all. Mm-hmm. But I'm thinking, I'm thinking going to the NCAA or being a tournament winner should be just as rewarding as being an Ivy League champion. Excellent. That's what that's what I'm predicting it will feel like. Well, we'll, we'll, ch- we'll have to check back in and, and uh, talk about it, hopefully okay. hopefully be able to compare. Well, Kathy Delaney-Smith, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. And uh, just a reminder to our listeners, you can follow us on Twitter at LockedOnWBB. You can like us on Facebook. And please do make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes and go ahead and review us. That uh, launches us up the charts. Uh, I'm your host, Howard Meddahl, wishing you a wonderful day.